that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention that as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. I went on a hike today and I found a thin place. You may be able to hear the water falling over the rocks in the background. It's hard to really describe it. It's just beautiful. Ahead of me, about a hundred yards or so, is a cave from which all this water is coming. The leaves are beginning to turn. There's about a 100-foot cliff above the cave that rises up into a deep blue clear sky. And other than the water, there's silence. I'm on a trail near Sherwood, Tennessee called the Buggy Top Trail. It's been a good day. On the way here, I listened to a sermon entitled, When One is Greater Than Two. It seems everywhere we look these days, there's divisions and polarizations. I mean, the obvious ones are political, but there are many others. Masks or no masks. Open things up, keep them all closed down. All lives matter, or black lives matter. Sweet tea, unsweet tea. Chick-fil-A, or Popeyes. I will go on record right now that Popeyes wins that one, hands down. It seems impossible to get past this amount of division. I made the mistake today of reading some comments on a post about whether or not the Chicks, the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, should have been nominated for a Country Music Association Award. And even among the fans of that band, there were little spar sparring incidents occurring in the comment section. I'm tired of all of this. I'm sure you are as well. In the sermon I listened to today, Dr. Taylor explores one of the greatest sentences in literature. I, for one, at least, would place it there. It doesn't matter where I rank it. If I said that out loud, it would just cause another debate. Galatians 3.28 says, There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are in Christ Jesus. Considering the time and the place 
that that sentence was written, it's remarkable. And when you add to that some of Paul's very own writings that we find in the Christian scriptures, it's an amazing sentence. And the question Dr. Taylor raised is a wonderful question as well. He asks, how did Paul arrive at that place? So, when one is greater than two, by Dr. Larry Taylor. The scripture will be read from Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 35. For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirits by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you foolish? Having begun with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain? If it is really, if it really is in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The second of today's scripture reading will be Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you who have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. On anyone's list of great passages, great verses in the letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, would have to be near the top. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Occasionally, the Apostle Paul soared to great heights in his spirit-inspired meditations. And when he did, the result was memorable sentences like Galatians 3.28. Such verses have come to us across the years as little jewels, lumps of coal squeezed by intense pressure in the furnace of inspired thought so that now, even after many centuries, they still appear to us as sparkling diamonds. In such verses as this, Paul shows himself to have been a man far ahead of his own time, and often enough, ahead of our time as well. Paul had to overcome racial, social, and sexual prejudice in order to make a statement like this. And while Paul wasn't always faithful to his own best insights, nevertheless, 
What he says here is one of the most remarkable sentences to come to us from the ancient world. What must have happened ever to enable Paul to say that in the church there are no distinctions of class or sex or race or social status? Paul had to struggle with the same forces of prejudice in himself and in his religion and in his society as we do. And yet somehow he managed to rise above all of that in this pinnacle moment of clear insight. And the result is still breathtaking after all these centuries. Paul was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures of his people. In his Bible, he'd read the Jews' conviction that they were the chosen people of God with a monopoly on God's favors. There, too, in the Old Testament, he'd found the institution of slavery as a given fact among his people for many centuries. The place of women in Paul's Hebrew patriarchal culture was that of a possession, a piece of property no better than slavery. Paul could find all of the popular prejudices about Gentiles and slaves and women confirmed by Scripture if he just looked for them. And there's no doubt that Paul was familiar with the little morning prayer in the Jewish prayer book in which men thank God that thou hast not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Some people, in fact, think that it was this very prayer that Paul had in mind when, in effect, he turned it wrong side out and he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Paul's day, that was a new kind of math. What had happened to this man in the ancient world to make it possible for him to say such a thing? There must have been quite a story behind that statement. Somebody has paradoxically observed that there are two classes of people, those who divide all people into two classes and those who don't. Paul lived in a world where people were commonly divided into two classes, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female. And Paul responded to this familiar division of life by putting everybody into one class. He said that in Christ, one is greater than two. The old spiritual math had been updated. It was a radical statement in Paul's day and almost as radical in ours. The Greeks, of course, were exclusive. They divided humanity into two classes, Greeks and barbarians. Greeks were superior, everyone else inferior. It was a matter determined by birth. These Greeks took a pride in culture and language and custom. There were no exceptions. Greeks are barbarians. And the Jews were no better. They built a wall around themselves, and like every wall in human relations, it kept some people out and it walled others in. The Jews referred to all others as goyim, foreigners. 
In Ephesians 2, the companion passage to Galatians 3, Paul described the Jewish attitude toward Gentiles like this. He said, the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Jews were just as exclusive as the Greeks and the most exclusive among them actually believe that God's purpose in creating Gentiles in the first place was to provide fuel for the fires of hell. And furthermore, they could quote scripture to support their prejudices. You ever notice how religious folks can usually do that? The Old Testament was just full of proof texts that were thoroughly racist and narrowly nationalistic. Anyone can find a proof text in Scripture for what he already thinks. Shakespeare said the devil can quote Scripture for his own benefit and that in matters of religion, any error can find someone to bless it and approve it with a text. The way we interpret the Bible is never any more enlightened than we are. If, for instance, we believe in handling snakes, or drinking poisons to demonstrate our faith, or foot washing, or the use of spells and magic to get what we want, or the essential inferiority of groups other than our own, we'll almost certainly find a text for it somewhere in the Bible. None of us ever comes to the Bible with a blank mind. We come with preconceptions that shape our interpretation. We all do it. In the year 48 or 49 A.D., Christian workers, bishops, and missionaries from all over the ancient world gathered in the city of Jerusalem for the first church council. We read about this Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 and also in Galatians 2. Now, the issue before this conference was whether or not a Gentile had to become a Jew and keep the Jewish laws about food and circumcision before he could become a Christian. That's the issue in the book of Galatians. Well, when that conference met in Jerusalem, Paul had already been at work as a missionary among the Gentiles for maybe 17 years. So he brought along with him the Gentile convert Titus. Now, Titus was exhibit A of how a Gentile could become a Christian without going through all the old Jewish requirements. Early on in its history, the church had to face this question of Jew and Gentile. The times demanded it. The new reality of Christ required it. And Paul knew that if these ancient divisions were preserved in the church, the missionary enterprise would fail. The old formula among both Greeks and Jews said, foreigner equals inferior. Paul rose above all that prejudice and he said, in Christ there aren't any foreigners, there aren't any Jews or Gentiles. Such distinctives have become immaterial. The church could not have survived unless it had settled this issue. But in order to settle the issue, the church had to revise its understanding of Scripture, which seemed to condone 
exclusiveness. More than 40 years ago, there was a musical on the Broadway stage that reminded us that children learn to hate. They have to be carefully taught. I remember as a child in church, I was taught a little chorus, which certainly had a good intention in its evangelistic proclamation, but whose more subtle exclusivistic message has stayed with me all these years? One side and only one, and yet the sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? In the world where Paul lived, slavery was an established institution of life. Nobody seriously questioned it. Slaves were bought and sold like any other commodity. Aristotle had defined a slave as an animated implement. He said no slave could ever live a worthwhile life. The Jews accepted slavery. After all, it was in their Bible, although the Old Testament scriptures had cautioned them to be fair and kind to their slaves, remembering that they too were once slaves down in Egypt. But when Jesus came, he brought the good news of the kingdom of God to the poor, saying that the meek would inherit the earth. He declared release for the captives and liberty for the oppressed. For Paul, the meaning of slavery had been shattered forever by Jesus. He wrote the wealthy Christian Philemon to accept his runaway slave Onesimus back into his household, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Now, of course, there was no opportunity to change the social institution of slavery itself in Paul's day. Christians had no right to vote. Rome tolerated no protests. But what Jesus had taught and what Paul later wrote did their slow subterranean work in the hearts of men and women. Even as late as the 16th century, Martin Luther quoted the Old Testament in support of slavery. England later outlawed slavery, and the Congress of Vienna in 1815 abolished slavery in all of Europe. But in America, slaveholders still quoted the Bible in defense of slavery. No preacher in the South after 1830 ever dared speak out against slavery. And yet, 1900 years before President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, Paul the Apostle wrote a little treatise about freedom called Galatians. And in that treatise he said, For freedom Christ has set you free. Do not therefore again submit to a yoke of slavery because in Christ there is no slave or free. Slavery simply could not exist in the new reality that Paul describes in Galatians. Thankfully, the church long ago decided to endorse the abolition of slavery. But in order to do so, it had to revise its interpretation of all those passages that seemed to affirm slavery. And that's the way it is, you see, in interpreting the Bible. Sometimes you've got to get beyond the letter of Scripture in order to read the spirit of Scripture. 
We have to abandon a proof text mentality in order to hear God speaking to us because there are texts in the Bible for almost anything. Personal relations take precedence over texts. For centuries, the church had the Bible with the teachings of Jesus and the letters of Paul, but when slavery was finally abolished, it was destroyed by societies and governments. Where was the church? What do you suppose might happen sometime if the church truly decided to listen to this Bible that it loves so much and get in on the front side of somebody's liberation instead of the back side? Whenever history and the times and new realities demanded a decision, the church faced the problem of Jew and Gentile, slave and free in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. These words from Paul have meant death to social exclusivism and racial exclusivism. But the pious Jewish male in his daily morning prayer also thanked God that he had not been born a woman. Who can blame him? Among the Jews, a wife was the property of her husband a biological reality that most women are weaker physically than their male counterparts had long since been codified into a social custom of female inferiority. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote, in every respect, woman is inferior to man. The Jewish Talmud everywhere assumes and frequently states the inferiority of women. Tertullian, one of the church fathers back in the third century, said, Every woman is Eve, the devil's gateway, who destroys the image of God in man. A resolution was passed at the Southern Baptist Convention in 1988 that said almost the same thing. As late as the sixth century, a theologian could seriously question whether a woman was even a human being in the full sense. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century referred to woman as an imperfect man. Freud declared, biology is destiny. Friedrich Nietzsche said, woman was God's second mistake. The history of sexual prejudice in the church and out is a disgraceful record. When I was a pastor in Oklahoma back in the 70s, our local chapter of Church Women United asked me to address their spring meeting on the subject, are we overlooking our woman power? Well, that's a formidable assignment for any man. You'd have to be a little foolish to accept it in the first place. But I remember that some of my first experiences in church were at WMU meetings. And in my research on the subject of women's liberation, what I discovered was that the structures of prejudice that women were facing were remarkably like what the civil rights movement had encountered 10 years before in the 60s. 
the same assigned roles and social traditions that worked in racial prejudice were working also in social prejudice, sexual prejudice. In so many respects, Paul was a man of his own times. His words about the place of women were not always as lofty as they are here in Galatians 3.28. He had only begun to allow his relationship with Jesus to affect his view of women. But it is to Paul's credit that in 1 Corinthians, he makes it clear that women have the right to pray and to prophesy in church. And that in Ephesians 5, he says three times that husbands are to love their wives and that husbands and wives are to be mutually subject to each other. And furthermore, in addition to Galatians 3.28, where Paul says there's no male and no female in Christ, there's also Galatians 16, a chapter easily overlooked, where Paul mentions Phoebe the deaconess, as well as seven other women by name who were active in the ministry of the church. Every once in a while, the power of the gospel broke through to Paul, and in those clearest moments, we can read the mind of God. The late Baptist theologian Dale Moody said that the teachings of the New Testament clearly show that women should be given a greater role in the ministry of the church. And I'm very thankful that here at Emmanuel, the message of freedom in Christ is being heard and that we're taking steps to recognize equality in Christ. In order for someone to be freed in the church, somebody else has to rethink, reinterpret, and rehear the scriptures. Sometimes we have to look beyond the words of Scripture in order to see the meaning of Scripture. We must go behind the letter of Scripture in order to hear the voice of the Spirit of God because to literalize Scripture may be to trivialize it. Paul was no different from us. He had to struggle with his background and his prejudices as they came into contact with the Christian gospel. And we can see this struggle reflected in his letters. At three points, Paul had to adjust his thinking and his interpretation of Scripture. And those points were Gentiles, slaves, and women. What was it? What was it that enabled him to do that? How could he update all his past with its cultural and religious prejudices? How could Paul do that? How can we? There's only one way, so far as I know. It takes a whole lot of grace. It's only when we start to allow every human relationship to be impacted by our relationship with Jesus that we can say along with Paul, there is no Jew or Greek, 
no slave or free, no male or female, because we are all one in Christ. Our old spiritual math has to collapse under grace. And when it does, that's the way that one becomes greater than two. Shall we pray? Gracious God, we thank you that in your wisdom you included in our canon of Scripture a book about freedom. Because as we study closely the text of this freedom letter, we start to realize the whole Bible is about freedom. About how we willingly sold ourselves into slavery, the slavery of sin and the law and death and how you have gloriously liberated us through Jesus Christ. We pray that every Sunday morning here might be a celebration of freedom. And that every evening of study this week might be a close examination of what it means to be a free person. So that we might affirm our birthright. So that we might come to know what Paul came to know so long ago. Now in this moment of invitation and response, we invite you to talk to us about freedom. About getting things off our back that have been burdens, that have tied us down for years, that we might experience the liberty in Jesus through faith in Him as Savior, as Lord, and if we haven't done that this morning, may we willingly open ourselves to him today in childlike faith so that we can know freedom too. In his name we ask. Amen. As I thought about Dr. Taylor's words, I also thought about how we all have our scripts you know, the habits that we've grooved into our daily lives, into our attitudes and our actions. Golfers practice to groove their swing to become more consistent and accurate with their golf shots. Runners train to better their endurance and their times. Writers write. Actors rehearse. Musicians practice. It seems to be a bit more difficult to recognize the automatic scripts and practices we all employ in our day-to-day -day thoughts and attitudes. These include our prejudices, our fears, the things we don't even recognize in ourselves, and the things we do. And the traditional math of our day-to-day -day society is bound in the divisions that I spoke about in the opening. As I sit here at this moment, the United States is about a week out from one of the most anxiety-filled and potentially divisive elections in its history. And the new normal of this age 
is 24-hour news cycles being filled from untold numbers of sources reporting or opining from across an extremely broad and confusing array of interpretations of varying sets of facts. It makes for some very confusing and divisive math. I debated on when I should post this episode. You know, should it be a response to the November 3rd, 2020 election or not? And then I recognized what I had done. I had allowed the spirit of the day to determine my practice. I was attempting to enter the fray of our culture as a response. I was beginning with the math of our current age. It's the script that comes through my current practice. The question asked in the sermon was, how did Paul arrive at the place he did? It was a place completely revolutionary to the spirit of his day. And then the question was, how do we, how do we arrive at that place? The math of Christ is different, and it's not new math. It's the math of the ages, the math of the creator of all there is. It's the math of the Christ. So it's time for me to practice that, you know, groove my swing so that it becomes consistent and repeatable and automatic. You know, where one is greater than two. I hope you've all enjoyed this edition of A Thin Place Podcast. If you have any suggestions or comments, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. Our podcast is available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your social media platforms. All of us who love Larry would also love for more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. I received a note just this week from someone thankful to hear Dr. Taylor again. Special thanks again to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing us to rediscover these sermons in this way on a thin place with Dr. Larry Taylor. Until next time, grace and peace.